Welcome to the Monterey Podcast. For more information, check out our website at montereychurch.com. Well, good morning. Uh, Psalm 23, we're going to get to that verse in just a moment, but before we begin, I just want to echo Reagan's enthusiasm for uh, just being together again. It's been really fun the last four or five weeks to see see old friends trickle in that you you knew they existed or you might follow on social media, but they're actually here and you see their face and kids that were this tall and all of a sudden they're this tall. Have y'all had that experience? Um, or babies that were this small and all of a sudden they're, they're this small. And uh, it's just been uh, wonderful to be uh, together. Uh, for those of you online joining us, um, we look forward to seeing you again at, at some point, but uh, we're, we're all one community. Uh, also, before we begin, just an update on our special missions collection. Our goal was 120000 and that goes to various partners around the world. We celebrated Mission Sunday, was it three weeks ago? Two weeks ago. And as of today, we are at $110,411.33. So we're, we're inching our way towards our goal. And uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, we just encourage you uh, to, to participate in that if you've not gotten to yet. And uh, I have no doubt we'll, we'll hit our goal. We are in between the end of Barry's uh, series that ended last week, Like Jesus, and Palm Sunday, which is next week already, followed by Easter Sunday. So today, uh, I was given the latitude to uh, spend time just on whatever, you know, just prayerfully on whatever uh, we thought maybe God had to share for us today. It was pretty obvious to me. Uh, pretty quickly, we needed to spend some time in this in-between space. And I'll share a little bit about that as we start going. I got a call from a friend in another state a few weeks ago, just absolutely broken. Um, His life hasn't led him to good places the last few years. Um, A lot of that's his own doing, and he knows that. But he is angry at God. He's in a hole he doesn't know how to climb out of. He wants to believe God has his best in mind, but he doesn't know where to turn anymore. He said he thought he was in an in-between place, his words, but it doesn't, it's starting not to feel like an in-between place because he he can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. His tracks are running out, and that's, that's where he is. Where do you go? What do you do when you are in the wilderness? The reason it struck me, I mean, I was through some prayer where we needed to go, is in part because uh, we're, we're nearing the end of this uh, Christian season of Lent. On the Christian calendar, the season of Lent, uh, 40 days of fasting uh, that, that ends here in a couple weeks, the, the Saturday, the day before uh, Easter Sunday. And Lent has been practiced in some form or fashion since at least the second century A.D., and it's because uh, in imitation or model of what? It's Jesus, 40 days in the desert, fasting for 40 days, 40 nights before he was tempted by Satan. And that is also an echo of what? Of Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. When, they, uh, when God led them on this, this exodus from Egypt, this escape from a dark place, from slavery, but the next step was not the promised land. The next step was wilderness. So 
Every, every February and March, beginning with Ash Wednesday on the Christian calendar, we practice a season of Lent. It may not feel like it a lot of times, but maybe if you've lived long enough, you understand that God uses wilderness to teach us and prepare us for new promised lands. So again, according to the Christian calendar, we're still in the desert today. Two weeks before Resurrection Sunday, we find ourselves in this in-between split, in-between place. We're not slaves in Egypt anymore. We've been, we've been rescued from that, but we've still not gotten to the other side. So today, we're going to take a brief look at, uh, at what wilderness experiences are spiritually. And this is, this is just the tip of the iceberg. I was talking to somebody between services. We could, we could spend a whole series on this. So, so take this. If there's something you hear and you want to, to pursue it further, uh, run with it. But um, I'm sharing maybe some of the core, core ideas in Scripture that um, God's leading us to today. My goal today is to encourage us that ultimately deserts can be food for our souls if we receive them. And not only that, I think Scripture teaches us and the Holy Spirit teaches us that deserts are absolutely necessary, unavoidable, to becoming fully mature followers of Jesus. In the words of another book, currently on the bookshelf of uh, my two-year-old son, Jake, we can't go over them, we can't go under them, we can't go around them. I guess we've got to, guess we've got to go through them. Going on a bear hunt. We're not hunting bears but we're hunting something. We're pursuing our creator. Whether you're seven or 70, God has something to teach us at every stage of life. This is the pattern. You can't go over it. You can't go under it, around it. You've got to go through it over and over in scripture. Forward progress always costs something. Forward progress always costs something. That's as true in the spiritual world, truer in the spiritual world, I believe, than anywhere in life, although it's true everywhere. You can't get around deserts in your spiritual growth. The reason is, one of the reasons is, when we have everything we need, we can't really take the lessons that God has for us. We don't pay attention enough in those times, and without deserts, we're left in a permanent spiritual kindergarten. Our spiritual growth hits a ceiling. So the question deserts ask is, what are we willing to lose in order to gain? So today, let's start with Israel, with the original Exodus story, the original wilderness story. So we know, we know what happened in Exodus. In the first several chapters, God gets the attention of not just Israel, but all of Egypt with this dramatic Exodus experience with the plagues, with the crossing of the Red Sea, and Israel had no doubt, as they shouldn't, had no doubt that God had plans for them. He had great plans for them to make good on his promise to Abraham, to make them as many as the sands of the shore, and especially to bless all nations of the world through them. They knew, they knew at that time, God, God was doing this for their benefit. It all sounded good, but the destination didn't come on the other side of the Red Sea. In fact, it didn't come after days or weeks. There was no clear plan in sight. Have we ever felt this way with God, with life? And so an angry nation wandering around the desert, hungry, restless, exhausted, confused, tells Moses, 
after only a month and a half in the desert, in Exodus 16.3, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. At least there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food that we wanted. But you brought us out here in this desert to starve this entirely, entire assembly to death. It is really easy to point fingers at Israel, at other characters in the Bible, but it shouldn't take us long to be dead honest that we would be the exact same way. And have we ever said that? Did you catch what they said? They would rather be back in Egypt, slaves, but with full stomachs. Because whatever God had in store for them, it was too much to lose. The wilderness is a painful thing. Israel knew God had brought them out by his own hand, but as soon as they thought they were going to die, returning to slavery didn't sound so bad. We've been there, haven't we? We don't really want to go back. We want forward progress, but there's a lot to lose in the desert. After all, the desert is a place of death, to which God says, yeah, that, that's my plan. That's exactly what happens in the desert. Not literal death, but a kind of dying to all the various things that we've grown dependent on, to all the things that we've, we've made our diet, that we've made our nutrition, that we drink from to satisfy us, that maybe they don't satisfy in the ways that we know, maybe we don't know yet, the ways we experienced God satisfying us before, but at least we know what to expect. As the saying goes, God didn't just have to get Israel out of Egypt. He had to get the Egypt out of Israel. He needed them to stay, stay in the wilderness for a while, for as long as it took to help them unlearn what they had learned there, to help us unlearn whatever we've learned by the patterns of this world. But after 45 days, they cried uncle because the desert is a place of emptying, of self Emptying. We've read uh, Philippians 2, getting rid of an old identity for an entirely new one. It, it takes time. So how do we end up in these deserts? I think there's, uh, there's maybe three ways that we find ourselves in, in, in deserts. One, sometimes we do it to ourselves. Sometimes this is sin in our lives. Sometimes this is things that we know consciously um, that we are, you know, we're, we're planting our roots in, that we're we're drinking from, and you know, you can't serve two masters. And eventually, everything comes to a head, and things break, and we have to unlearn and restart. Sometimes we drive ourselves to the desert. Sometimes other people drive us to the desert through little or no fault of our own. Maybe it's an environment that we're in. Maybe it's a person in our life. And we are just absolutely depleted and spent and our life becomes a desert, and we didn't, we didn't choose that. And then thirdly, sometimes life just hands us deserts. Sometimes we encounter situations. Uh, we encounter viruses. We encounter deaths in our families. We encounter un- loss of job. You name it. And <clears throat> we didn't choose to be washed ashore, but here we are. And the message, the message today, what we'll, what we'll get into here, here in a moment is in in all three of those situations, God is with us in the desert. God is always with us. God is always with us. But God God also knows what we stated a moment before, that it often takes a desert 
for us to realize God is with us because those are the places that our, our ears open up and we're starving for something. And we're going to listen. God is always with us no matter how you got there. And so often, it's not until the desert that we even begin to realize that we were slaves to something. Maybe something we chose. Maybe something that was put upon us that we were drawing our life from that had no place to have been drawn life from in the first place. God didn't design us that way. Maybe it was a job we were a slave to, a person, material things, these addictions that we refuse to call addictions, these thousand little things that are in our lives. But God says it's time to pick up and go. And sometimes we do that voluntarily, like Israel, with enthusiasm when they left Egypt. And sometimes we're uh, kind of kicking and screaming. I think of Saul on the road to Damascus, blindness for three days, God drawing him in to the wilderness because he had no idea what he was doing. But ultimately, when we leave, when we get called out, the first stop is never a land flowing with milk and honey. It's never the promised land. The first stop is the wilderness. It's a place that makes us question everything. It's a place to listen, a place to let go. For Jesus, that looked like 40 days. For Paul, that looked like three years in Arabia, I believe the book of Galatians tells us. For Israel, that was 40 years. Why so long? Because the deserts aren't about information download. They're about identity change. And it takes losing something for our identities to change. But we're never alone. <clears throat> so, uh, Psalm 23. Uh, we, it, it, you know, I've learned in the last really just five or six years uh, some of the true context for this. And we, uh, we're kind of misguided when we, when we don't understand some of the, the dynamics of the Middle East and the ancient Near East, these, uh, these settings where uh, really, literally every book of the Bible was written from, you know, from various time periods. And so Psalm 23, I, I have in my head, I don't know about you, but I've got uh, these kind of knee-jerk automatic images of uh, lush green Nebraska fields, right? This, you see something like that when you hear something? We'll read this in a moment. Um, but before we read, just to set this expectation, that's not where David or the psalmist is, is, is writing from. Deserts, for a shepherd in, in the Near East, in the Middle East, were not green acres and abundance. They were, uh, they, they were I'm sorry, green pastures weren't green acres and abundance. They were deserts. They were deserts. They were places of scarcity. So let's read Psalm 23 together, and then, uh, then we'll, we'll kind of walk through and see what, what God is telling us. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love 
or mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Another thing we may or may not know before we kind of go uh, line by line through this about deserts is that desert geography to a, to a Hebrew, to an Israelite, to a Hebrew, uh, is synonymous with shepherds. Deserts and shepherds, they go together, like peas and carrots, or peanut butter and jelly, or whatever else goes, they go together if you're, if you're a Hebrew. And what's fascinating to me is, is what, what, what you see right now. Um, so the, the Hebrew language, which in the Old Testament in particular is a very simple language, there's only several thousand words in the whole like vocabulary set, so words are related. And so you have... Uh, root words off of which are built other words by adding prefixes, suffixes, vowels, and things like this. So words like desert and shepherd that you wouldn't think go together, like peas and carrots, or, which I don't know why that goes. To, I don't eat peas and carrots, but um, they, these do. So uh, up top, uh, you have the consonants, a vowel in there uh, by accident, but the consonants D, B, R from right to left. D-B-R, the root, this is the root word. Uh, we, we'll say deber, the root word. Um, so desert is midbar. Do you hear the deber in there? It's the prefix is, is uh, me. Midbar and shepherd is mud beer. Deserts are homes of shepherds. In ancient, ancient Hebrew, even preceding some of the Old Testament Hebrew, um, debar uh, means to lead. So if you just take the root word, the root word debar means to lead. Maybe it's no coincidence that all the faithful leaders in the Bible were also shepherds. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, they were shepherds. Uh, the more common translation of debar that you'll see in most of uh, the Old Testament is to speak. Are these things related? To lead, to speak, Shepherd, deserts, do you see, maybe it's, maybe there's something there. And then also interesting to me, this may be more information than you care to know about, but this is all really uh, feeling out the picture of the word desert. Two of the five first books of the Old Testament of our Torah are built off of this root word. So the book of Deuteronomy in Hebrew uh, is the spoken words. The book of Numbers in Hebrew it's not the Hebrew word for numbers. It translates as in the desert. So all of these things. The desert is a place where God speaks. The desert is a place where God speaks, and it's a place where you'll find the shepherd. So back to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. The obvious question a Hebrew reader would ask when they read this is not one that's obvious to us. The question is, why do I lack nothing in the desert? So already they're leaning in. The Lord is my shepherd. Shepherds belong in the desert. Why do I lack nothing? Maybe the most important thing to understand about shepherds today is that shepherds lead with their voice. And they can lead from behind just as easily as they lead in front. In fact, more common for them to lead behind as a rear guard. And the sheep don't have to have eyes on them to know where to go. 
And so my understanding is this is really unique among, uh, among livestock, probably among all animals, is that sheep respond to a human voice, not like goats. In fact, I, uh, something else, I was talking to somebody between services. Sheep and goats were, uh, are today in the same flocks. Uh, so this is a message from Matthew 25 as well. They're in the same flocks. The difference is the sheep listen to the shepherd's voice. The goats... They just do their own thing, man. Like, they'll be, they'll be behind the shepherd. The sheep are kind of in this you know, amoeba-like. They're kind of moving together and they're listening to the shepherd's voice. The goats are uh, 100 yards back, scattered all over the hillside. Uh, and they'll, they'll eventually get there, but they don't listen to the shepherd's voice. So the sheep listen to the shepherd's voice. Read John 10 after this morning. I'll share a couple of things from there, but, but write that down. Read that this week. Because Jesus tells us that the sheep know the shepherd's voice, right? And actually, if you put two flocks of sheep in the same sheep pen, two flocks from two different shepherds in the same sheep pen, one shepherd, and they're mixed together, one shepherd can come and call out his sheep with his voice, and the others won't respond. Because that's not the voice they know. But this, this is our shepherd. This is our, our voice. Sheep recognize their shepherd's voice, but they won't respond to a stranger. And interesting in verse 6 of John 10, uh, John notes that the, the Pharisees didn't understand this teaching. This parable of the sheep knowing their shepherd's voice, and the Pharisees were confused about that. So equally important that shepherds lead with their voice is what they don't lead with. They have a rod and a staff, don't they? They comfort me. They don't lead with a rod and a staff. They protect with a rod and a staff. They don't discipline or lead or goad or prod with a rod. That's not the purpose of the rod and the staff. Who does lead with a rod and a staff? Pharaoh led with a scepter, with a rod and a staff. Pharaoh led through power and coercion, and God does not, does not do that. Uh, for the same reasons that I use going on a bear, bear hunt references in my sermons, I can't help but think of the voice and the stick when it comes to our two-year-old, right? right? So we have a two-year-old. We also have a 12-year-old and a nine and an eight and a one and a zero-year-old. But the two-year-old in particular, when you talk about a voice and a stick, um, which, which is easier to use sometimes? Well, that would be the stick seems a lot faster, uh, but that's not how you lead that's not how you guide. Because it's the sheep or the child that has to respond and choose to respond to the voice. What we learn of God is that he will lead with his voice as long as it takes. As long as it takes. And if you, if you look at human history, if you just look at my life and your life, God is exceedingly patient with us. He's not going to coerce. He's going to wait until you're in a space where everything else is depleted and you're, you can listen to his voice. The shepherd's stick is for protecting, never disciplining. God will be gentle with us. Jesus' parable of the lost sheep in Matthew 18 and Luke 3 also makes a lot of sense in this context because the shepherd knows that the 99 can hear his, his voice. They'll listen and they'll wait. He's not worried about them right now. He's worried about the one who can't hear his voice and who maybe at some point chose not to. Or maybe it's a young sheep who hasn't learned yet what it means and how critical it is to follow the shepherd's voice. 
So the shepherd searches out that one to speak directly to that sheep because that sheep needs the guiding voice to, just to survive, to find water, to find pasture, which brings us to the next line. And we'll go through these next ones uh, more quickly. Green pastures, what are they? If uh, we're in a desert, why, why use the term green pastures? Desert's not a place of abundance. It's the place of just enough. But green pastures in the Middle East were those places that you could look on a hillside and there was just enough tufts of grass, green tufts of grass, not, not Nebraska fields, but tufts of grass, that uh, that was the green pasture, of, that was the destination for that day or that hour. And when that was gone, from where you sit, you may not be able to see another hill of green tufts of grass, but the shepherd, the shepherd knows three hills and to the left where the next green is going to be. Trust. Green pastures are uh, Jesus' lesson of daily bread, right? This is the Lord's prayer. This is what green pastures are in the Psalms. It's, it's, just, it's just daily bread. It's just enough. The desert has enough to sustain us if we can be led to the things that actually sustain us. Next line, still quiet waters. Uh, likewise, this isn't a, a babbling brook. The Hebrew uh, it literally says waters of rest. So the opening video got this right. Waters of rest. doesn't mean water is abundant and flowing. It means the waters are still and that they're, they're enough. Next line, paths of righteousness, or, or actually literally right paths. The video got this right, too. Um, my understanding is that they would literally, this is the term for these paths that shepherds knew of and would take uh, over hundreds or, 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 or more years that this is, this is the path to the next green pasture. Shepherds know where the tufts of grass are even when we can't recognize them. Next line, though I walk through the valley of shadow, night is going to come. Inevitably, night falls, and you can't see with your eyes, but it doesn't matter because you can hear with your ears. I love the phrase uh, that I've heard that as Christ followers, as Jesus followers, we've learned to become people of the ears and not the eyes. We stop learning to trust what we see with our eyes because it's deceiving. It's misleading. Things sure look shiny, and the shinier they look, the more we think they're going to satisfy, and they don't. And we tried them anyway, and they don't. But if we begin to be led with our ears, this is how God uh, leads. He speaks. He speaks in the desert. Next line, prepares a table for us in front of our enemies, just as he did for the first Exodus community. You know, out of, through the Red Sea and into the wilderness, he does this with us. He prepared for them a tabernacle, which is his mobile temple. It was a place of, uh, of his presence that they would be secure in knowing that the shepherd, that he was present with them. So there's that aspect that's not actual bread and food, but he provides that too. Uh, manna in the wilderness. He pro provides his presence and he provides manna. It's both. So for us, when it seems like all we see in the desert is scarcity, he sets a table of enough, which is not just, man does not live on bread alone. It's both. And next line, our cup overflows, again, in the desert, not with material things, but with things that truly satisfy. 
Next line, goodness and mercy. These are the covenant blessings. Remember, uh, you know, uh, Mount Sinai, uh, uh, the, the two mountains, when they would pronounce the blessings and curses, if you are faithful to the covenant, you'll be blessed. If you're not, this is what will happen. These are the blessings of the covenant. Goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. The shepherd is being faithful to us even when we've been unfaithful to him. And finally, last line, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Which I want you to think about that. The house of the Lord was a literal temple, right? So to David's audience, that would have been very confusing because nobody dwells in the temple, at least not forever. No, nobody does that. You're not allowed to do that. You, you can't do that. But David knows something that maybe other people haven't figured out, and that is the whole earth is the Lord's house, and I know that I'll be in his presence wherever I go, whether the lowest valleys or the highest mountains. So I, I think... I mean, to me, Psalm 23, when, you, uh, when, you, when we understand that this is not about a shepherd leading uh, a flock through uh, Nebraska fields, those flocks don't need shepherds, right? There's plenty of food there. This is about a place of barrenness that he's having to lead them day after day, hour by hour, so that they will have one mouthful after another, even if they can't see 10 minutes ahead from now, as long as the shepherd is here, Psalm 23 tells us, we know we're going to be okay. So what does Jesus mean when he says, I am the good shepherd, right? Does that bring maybe new life to uh, one of his, his I am statements? And John, I am the good shepherd. Can't the desert be full of joy too? Not in the first 45 days. Those, those are really painful. Maybe the first yeah, 39 years are painful as well. But eventually, when we're there long enough, joy can be ours because joy is a relational feeling. And he's, he set our table with a tabernacle as well as daily bread. We're all in different places. Some of us need to hear this last word today as well. So, so I'll share this. Um, as much or more than anything in Scripture, deserts can't be learned hmm. What God wants us to learn cannot be learned by acquiring more knowledge, right? By sitting through sermons, by doing Bible studies, by um, memory verses. uh, All of this can never replace the work that wilderness does. Wilderness must be experienced to be learned. But it's easier to short-circuit that. We kind of have a, a hack that we use. Maybe this is a, a, we think it's a spiritual hack and it doesn't work. We, we want other people to give us maps of what this is like. And so just teach me, just show me in the Bible, just, but as long as I don't have to go there because that's going to cost too much. I'm going to lose too much to go there. And so we replace the desert with some spiritual map with these predetermined waypoints. And we prefer what I would say we prefer religion to wilderness. And so let me kind of land this plane with this little parable that I came across a few months ago that I thought was just, just spot on for this today. So I'll read this to you. There was once a young man from a little town on the backside of nowhere who in desperation left one day to go look for something he knew not. He just knew he was empty. After several years, he still hadn't returned, and the whole town thought he was dead. But then one day, 
he returned home, a new man, full of light and full of joy, and with stories of great adventure, stories of adventure on a great river. The people were so eager to know about his travels. But how could he ever tell, how could he ever put into words the feelings that flooded his heart when he saw the flowers, when he heard the night sounds of the forest, when he sensed the danger of the wild beasts or paddle his canoe over treacherous rapids? So he told them, I can't tell you. Go find out for yourself. No, they said, you, you tell us. And he said, okay, I shall draw you a map so you can go and see for yourselves. And he did. And everyone pounced on the map, but no one went to visit the great river. Instead, they framed the map on their, uh, in their town hall. They made copies of it for themselves, and all who had a copy considered themselves experts on the river. For did they not know its every turn and bend? Could they not see it, how broad and how deep, where its rapids were and, and where the falls were? Yet their feet never left the comfort of their town. It's a question for us today as we, as we ponder deserts. Do you ever settle for maps, for an imitation of the real thing, for fear of what you may lose in the wilderness? Do we trust the shepherd enough to keep us, to guide us, one pasture, one tuft of grass at a time? As we approach Resurrection Day, Easter, and leave behind this symbolic 40 days in, uh, of Lent, 40 days in the wilderness. Maybe you find yourself in a desert right now. Maybe the Holy Spirit is calling you into a desert right now, and you're resisting. Maybe you've already, maybe you've already spent some time in a desert in uh, recent months or years, and you can testify to how faithful the shepherd is. Maybe you're still in Egypt, and you don't know it. Wherever you are today, remember, the shepherd meets us there. Trust the shepherd. Trust the one who laid our spiritual geography. Trust the map maker to lead you with his voice. Trust that you are a sheep. He is the good shepherd. And whatever, whenever he says it's time to go, he can be trusted. Maybe the simplest way to say all this is to go back to, uh, to Jake's bookshelf. You can go over it. You could try to go under it. You might figure out how to go around it, but you're not going to make any forward progress without going through it. May we trust the shepherd. Let's pray. God, how, how beautiful life is and how difficult it is to let go of the things that seem so important. Uh, God, our prayer uh, depends on our place today. Um, I pray that you hear the stirrings of our heart. God, you know the stirrings of our heart are four things that satisfy, which only you can provide. But God, today, wherever we are, would you just help us to trust? To trust that you, um, you have always been leading us. And when things are quiet enough, when we release enough, that we actually have ears to hear you, that you will be faithful. You'll lead us further and further and further from Egypt. Uh, you'll continue to make us new and that um, you are taking us and you will take us to the promised land. I thank you for these promises. Thank you for your word, for your truth. Thank you for this community. Pray this in Jesus' name.